Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Warnell for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I have been uh, on the air for uh, you know a while now. I've been came in early this morning to sit in for Jesse on Jesus 911, and uh, and I just sat in for Jesse with Terry on the Terry and Jesse show. And they uh, they just got me some coffee, which I have uh, not been having as much caffeine during our uh, Lenten sacrifice. So I am absolutely raring to go. In fact, I'm gonna have to try to slow myself down so that you can understand what I'm saying. Um, but we're going to talk about a lot of things today. We're going to talk about um, uh, Lent and how your Lenten sacrifice is going. What does it mean? Give us something up for Lent. We're going to talk about uh, sacramentals, indulgences, if we have time. We're going to talk about prayer. But I want to start off with the readings from this Sunday. It is the second full Sunday in Lent. And I, I, I look at the Sunday Mass Sunday's the first day of the week, and that's kind of where we get our marching orders for the week. And I uh, attend Mass in the Extraordinary Form. So this is uh, the readings from uh, the second Sunday of Lent, which in the old form of the rite is referred to as Reminiscere Sunday, from the first word of the introit, Remember, remember, O God, the bowels of thy compassion and thy mercies that are from the beginning of the world. And the very first reading for Reminiscere Sunday is from the uh, Epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, 1 through 7. And this is one that you will know. We pray and beseech you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so also you would walk, that you may abound the more. In other words, Paul is saying you've learned from us how you should live in order to please God, Now, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we urge you to actually live that way. For you know what precepts I have given you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is one of the Bible verses that we quote the most on this program. It tells us that the will of God is not an inscrutable mystery, that he's shown us how to live in order to be holy. He's given us the commandments and the beatitudes and the sacraments to help us be holy, Because holiness, our personal holiness, is his will for us. St. Paul goes on, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles that know not God, and that no man overreach nor circumvent his brother in business, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we have told you before and have testified. Now, This is generally understood to mean that we should avoid uh, both sexual immorality and injustice in the way that we deal with others. And in the original context, St. Paul is actually applying a general principle to a specific situation. Namely, Christian converts in Thessalonica were getting married to close family members. Uh, Of course, for a Christian, this is forbidden. um, Richie? I don't know if there's an open mic, but I'm getting I'm getting a lot of crosstalk in my uh, in my phones here, so I don't know if our audience is listening to that, but it's a tad bit distracting for me. Okay, uh, so Saint Paul is talking. Yeah, the Christians of Thessalonica they're getting married to close family members, which of course is forbidden for Christians. It's it's considered incest, but it was allowed by the pagans uh, because of their laws concerning inheritance. That's why fornication and business wound up in this same verse, because uh, this this immoral practice of, of an unlawful marriage could then lead to divorce and lawsuits because of the various family members vying for their piece of the pie. 
And so St. Paul wants the, the Thessalonian converts to understand you cannot behave this way, and, you know, you can't practice the immoral things. You cannot, um, you know, go against the, the law of the Church and be a good Christian. As he says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto sanctification in Christ Jesus our Lord. It goes for us too, bottom line. God wants you to be holy. He's given you the means to be holy, but you cannot be holy. In fact, you cannot call yourself a devout Catholic if you ignore the moral teachings of the church. So, you know, Joe Biden, call your office. So especially in Lent, we should pray that we never be addicted to earthly lusts like the heathens that don't know God, but rather that we would live modestly, chastely, in holiness in order to deserve the name of Christian, and that is no nonsense. Uh, next up is the Gospel for Reminiscere Sunday, which is the Transfiguration from Matthew 17. At that time Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. And Peter, answering, said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And lo, a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And the disciples, hearing, fell upon their face, and they were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said to them, Arise, and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. And as he came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell this vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now we can do the whole show unpacking this reading. But I want to focus on why did Jesus, why was he transfigured before the apostles on Mount Tabor? St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, uh, quote, Our Lord, after foretelling his passion to his disciples, had exhorted them to follow this path of his. Now, in order that anyone go straight along a road, he must have some knowledge of the end. Thus, an archer will not shoot the arrows straight unless he first sees the target. In other words, the transfiguration shows us how our glorified bodies shall rise from the dead. And, and seeing a vision of this happy ending gives us something to shoot for and should encourage us to be patient in our trials and sufferings, a good message for Lent. Now, why did Moses and Elias, or, or Elijah, appear with our Lord? Well, Moses is there representing the, the old law, and Elias representing the prophets. They came to, to do homage to our Lord, to testify that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Savior, and that he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Now, we know that, that uh, Elias was translated directly into heaven, so he's there in his own body, but what about Moses? You know, um, there's a Jewish tradition that the body of Moses was, in fact, assumed into heaven after his death. Uh, in fact, the dispute between St. Michael the Archangel and, and the devil over the body of Moses that's referred to in the book of Jude comes from the Jewish tradition of the assumption of Moses. And, and I believe that's also related to Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, and the, the, uh, the two witnesses that Jesus will commission to prophesy in the last days. Who are these two witnesses? Some would suggest uh, Enoch and Elias, 
or perhaps just two unknown figures from the future. But there's a longstanding interpretation that the two witnesses represent the law and the prophets, just like at the Transfiguration, and therefore they are to be identified with Moses and Elias. And if they had both been assumed into heaven, it makes sense that they had all, you know, that they could appear together with our Lord. You know, also when you read in, in uh, further into Revelation 11, John prophesies the miracles that the two witnesses will perform. And verse 6 says that they'll have the power to turn uh, water into blood, which repeats the famous miracle of Moses in Exodus 7. Verse 5 says they'll have the power to destroy their enemies with fire, right? which, which recalls the, uh, the, the confrontation between Elias and the priests of Baal in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1. So um, Jewish tradition expects both Moses and Elijah to return. And we see that in, in Malachi 4 and in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So, I mean, we can see that this is all being fulfilled. The letter of Jude, uh, the fact that Moses and Elias appeared at the Transfiguration, the parable also of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, I think sheds light on this also. You know, remember when, when Dives, the rich man, and Lazarus die, they go to Sheol, they go to the land of the dead. And Dives goes to hell, uh, the hell of the damned, but Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, or a.k.a. the, the limbus patrum, the limbo of the fathers. And Dives calls out to, to Abraham, Father, I beseech thee, send Lazarus to my father's house that he may testify to my brethren, lest they also come into this place of torments. Right? So this is Abraham's bosom. It's, it's the limbo of the fathers. Jesus has not yet opened the gates of heaven. So this is where the just were awaiting their, their entrance into uh, heavenly glory. And, but Abraham said to him, uh, you know, Dives wants him to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers about, uh, you know, the, the, his fate in hell. But Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said unto him, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rises from the dead. And so Moses and Elias, the law and the prophets, it's the same two witnesses in this parable as at the transfiguration and at the end times in the book of Revelation. And in every case, those two witnesses point to Jesus. Our Lord himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to thee, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the smallest part of a letter, will pass from the law until all has been fulfilled. You know, not one iota, not one jot or tittle, as it says in the old translation. So the church tells us this passing away of heaven and earth, it's not the end of the, uh, of the world. It's the turning of the ages that comes with the death and resurrection of Christ. And th those to whom this gospel is addressed, whether the first century or the 21st century, we understand we're living in the final age under the new and eternal covenant. And we still have the moral law that's written on the heart and the prophets that point to Jesus. Okay, lots more when we come back right after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm uh, your host, Matthew Arnold, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Once upon a time, an Irishman moved to a little coastal town in England, and one night he came into the local pub, and he ordered three pints of beer and proceeded to quietly drink them all. 
Next night, he did the same thing, orders three beers, drinks them all. Now, on the third night, the bartender asks him, uh, you know, why do you always order three beers at a time? And he says, oh, sure, and I have two brothers. One of them went off to Australia, the other went to America, and I come here to England. But before we left home, we promised that whenever we went out for a pint, we'd drink one for, you each drink one for all three of us. Now, the bartender uh, thought that was charming and amusing, and he told the other patrons, and they over the following weeks, became quite fond of their new neighbor and his eccentric drinking habits. Until one night, he came into the pub and he only ordered two beers. And the bartender came to him and he says, you know, just on behalf of myself and everybody here at the bar, we just want to say that we are sincerely sorry for your loss. And he says, you know, what do you mean... And the bartender says, well, since you only ordered two pints, we naturally assumed that one of your brothers uh, had died. And he says, oh, no, no, my brothers are fine. I just give it up for Lent. So it has been two weeks. Going to be talking about the spirit of Lent here. It's been two weeks today since Ash Wednesday 2021. We're now in our second full week of Lent. So I want to ask you how you were doing with your Lenten sacrifice, have you been able to maintain? You know, I, I mentioned to Terry in, in the last hour on the Terry and Jesse show that most people uh, bail on their New Year's resolutions pretty quickly after the 1st of January. And, and it's not uncommon for Catholics to stumble when they give up something for Lent. And the, the question is, what do you do if you mess up your Lenten sacrifice? Is it a mortal sin? What are the rules regarding this, you know, particularly Catholic practice? Well, as I mentioned last week, once upon a time, uh, all Catholics used to fast, you know, um, all 40 days in Lent, uh, unless they were excused for some reason. Uh, and in the Middle Ages, they, they abstained as well, right? The, the 40 days of Lent, uh, excluding the, the six Sundays of Lent, where, you know, we, we are not called upon to fast. So um, under the current law of the Church, we are only obliged to abstain on the Fridays of Lent, and we are only obliged to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. However, you know, uh, Richie, I'm sorry, I have to tell you, I know you've got an open mic in the studio somehow, because I'm hearing it in my headphones. I think that is maybe your talkback mic. Sorry, folks, a little inside baseball <laughs> for you listening here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Um, where was I? Okay, so um, what happens if you fail in your commitment? For example, is it a mortal sin to mess up your Lenten sacrifice? You know, um, because it is now customary, since we're not fasting the whole 40 days, uh, most of us, it's customary to give something up for Lent. So um, let's take an example. Let's assume that you drive through McDonald's, you know, you order your Big Mac combo, the person on the other end of the speaker says, and what would you like to drink with that? And you say, I'll have a medium Diet Coke. Uh, uh, please. And then halfway through your lunch, you remember, oh, no, I gave up soda pop for Lent. You know, have you committed a mortal sin? Well, in a word, no. In fact, it's not really a sin at all because giving something up for Lent is a custom. Uh, it's not an obligation. It's not a solemn vow. Uh, giving something up for Lent is voluntary, and so it does not oblige under pain of sin. Like I say, we're only obliged to abstain on the Fridays and fast on, on the days appointed. So although having made that commitment, really you should, uh, you know, repent of your negligence and strive to be more aware and consciously enter into that Lenten spirit in such a way that that sort of thing is less likely to happen. 
Now, let's take another question. Let's say you're on your way to work. Uh, you go into the office. You realize, oh, I didn't take time for breakfast. You drive through McDonald's and you order a sausage McMuffin and coffee. And you dive into your sandwich, right, you know, as you're driving in the car. And you turn on the, the local Catholic radio and you suddenly realize, oh, no, it's Friday of Lent. And I'm eating a big piece of greasy sausage. Now, is that a mortal sin? Now, this one's more complicated. Because abstinence from meat on the Fridays of Lent is a precept of the church. It does oblige under pain of sin. However, if you genuinely forgot, then it's not a mortal sin. Because as we know, to be guilty of a mortal sin, there has to be three things. Three things must be present. It has to be a grave matter. Uh, you have to have, have given it sufficient reflection. And, and you must give it the consent of the will. So if you genuinely forgot it was Friday, or that you were, you know called upon to abstain, then you're not guilty of a mortal sin because you didn't reflect on it. You didn't give it full consent of the will. In other words, mortal sins are not accidents, but are knowingly and intentionally chosen. It would be different if you went to McDonald's knowing it was Friday and purposely chose to get that sausage and McMuffin in spite of the precept of the church. That would be a mortal sin. And for that, you would need to repent and go to confession. But because, you know, because it's uh, abstaining from meat on Friday's precept of the church... So back to the question, though, of giving something up for Lent. What if you've decided to give up sweets for Lent, and uh, one day you say to yourself, I, I can't stand it anymore. I have to have something sweet. And you go to 7-Eleven to buy some Twinkies or, or you know, Hostess cupcakes or whatever, uh, and you gobble them down, and you immediately are filled with shame and remorse. Now, is that a mortal sin? And again, no, it's not. And for the same reason as before, your Lenten observance doesn't oblige under pain of sin. And by the way, if it sounds like I'm obsessed with junk food, <laughs> it's because I'm trying to do the honors program this year. I've been fasting uh, all of the weekdays of Lent, and, and, and I've done very well so far. Um, and it was funny, I mentioned it to our RCIA director. I, I instruct, I'm an RCIA instructor at my parish. I talked to the director the other night, and I said, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. He says, oh, the church fast. He says, you know, one of us, uh, is, is fasting on bread and water. It's like, so, you know, so there's always somebody, right? The point is that you don't take pride in, in what you've decided to do for Lent, you know, it, because it's, it's a voluntary thing. It's, it's something that's between you and God. And, and Jesus says, when you fast, wash your face, comb your hair. Don't go around moaning and groaning, oh, you know, this terrible sacrifice I've made. No, you do it for God and you do it joyfully. It's a penitential season, but we can enter, you know, it's rejoice in the Lord always, we're cleaning out our, our uh, you know, it's a spring cleaning for your soul. And this is a good time. So uh, Thomas Akempis says in The Imitation of Christ, you know, and I apply this to myself, you might be in a good disposition now, but you don't know how long you're going to persevere in it. So always keep in mind that all of us are frail, but no one is more frail than myself. Uh, we talked with Terry last hour that one of my favorite devotions uh, to the Passion is the Stations of the Cross. It's a favorite devotion for Lent. And, uh, you know, we always pray the stations as a family on Good Friday. And, you know, um, you'll notice that our Lord falls three separate times on his way to Calvary. And there's a lesson there for you and for me that, you know, when we pick up our own cross to try and follow him, you know, the fact that we stumble, the fact that we fall in our Lenten observance and our Lenten sacrifice is part of the journey. You know, it, it's a powerful reminder of our own frailty. 
And as our Lord himself said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And further, as I've I've mentioned often on this program, the poverty of spirit mentioned by Jesus in the first beatitude is all about the recognition that without him, we can do nothing. So while accidents are not mortal sins and giving up something for Lent doesn't oblige under the pain of sin, if you find yourself forgetting uh, your Lenten obligations or your Lenten observance even, your own voluntary sacrifice, you probably want to bring that to a priest in the sacrament of confession, just as you would if you were to find yourself committing any kind of, uh, frequently committing some venial sin. That's something you would also want to address in the confessional because little sins can lead to bigger ones. And, you know, purging ourselves of sins, and especially our attachment to sins, and we're going to talk about that later, even venial sins, that's the whole point of mortification. As St. Paul says, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Um, the pastoral statement on penance and abstinence was issued by the National Conference of Catholic Bishops back in 1966, and it was really kind of a general overhaul of the Lenten observance and the Lenten obligations. And you can find that on the USCCB website. It goes over all the official rules for Lent uh, as it is practiced here in the United States of America. And there's a lot lot in that document about the voluntary aspect of uh, penance and mortification. But, I mean, in the kind of typically verbose manner of modern church documents, uh, it, um, you know, it's, it's a little convoluted, but, but bottom line, it's really encouraging the three traditional practices um, that it says are to be taken up with renewed vigor during Lent, and that's prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. Okay, so in addition to fasting, prayer and almsgiving. These are known traditionally as the three pillars of Lent, and, and they fall under the cardinal virtue of justice. And that's interesting. Maybe you weren't aware of that, because uh, I was not in, until I, I looked at this document. See, justice is what we owe to others, right? To, to God worship and to our superior's obedience and, and so forth. So uh, prayer is a matter of justice to God. That's what we owe to God. Almsgiving is a matter of justice to our neighbor, especially the poor. See, we owe them that. And uh, fasting is a matter of justice toward yourself. Think about that. You owe it to yourself to practice penance and mortification because that's what purges you from sin. You know, I I mentioned that the Stations of the Cross is one of my favorite devotions. And the the 10th station is Jesus is stripped of his garments. And if you've seen The Passion of the Christ or, you know, I mean, other Catholic works of art, but particularly that, that film, The Scourging of the Pillars is, is depicted so brutally. And you realize that our Lord was just, just cut to ribbons. And then the Romans put his garment, they put his robe back on him uh, when he was carrying the cross. But when he gets to Calvary, they got, got to brutally take that robe off him. They strip him of his garments. And when they do, you know, as, as he walked along, his blood would have, would have uh, stuck to the cloth. And so when he's stripped of his garments, it just reopens all of those wounds. And we practice mortification in order to strip ourselves of sin 
so that Jesus might clothe us in, in holiness, in the robes of, of righteousness. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that mortification is, is painful, that it hurts to sacrifice, uh, especially to sacrifice all of our unlawful attachments. And that, my good friends, that is no nonsense. Now, the point of Lent is to grow in holiness, so I want to talk about a couple of other topics um, today as we move forward here, um, and those are sacramentals and indulgences, right? Uh, thankfully, the Church offers us many infallible means of growing in holiness. So we're going to take time in the next uh, segment to talk about two of those most powerful means and how you can um, fruitfully use indulgences and sacramentals in your own life. That and more when No Nonsense Catholic returns here on Virgin's Most Powerful Radio right after this. Welcome back. I got a little uh, rain on myself here. We have, uh, I had to, uh, nature called, and it's raining here in Southern California, and our Virgin Most Powerful Radio restroom uh, is accessed from outside the building. So just talking to Richie, I think it's time for us to uh, raise some extra money, maybe put in an awning <laughs> so we don't have to get drenched uh, every time we, we leave the building. Okay, talking about our Lenten sacrifice and the... Uh, the great way to grow in holiness all year round, but especially in Lent, is, you know, and, and, and an infallible means of doing that is via indulgences and sacramentals. So I'll talk about indulgences first. And, you know, as a Catholic, there's punishment that's due for your sins. Eternal punishment for mortal sins and temporal punishment that was, you know, temporary punishment for venial sins. <clears throat> Even after those sins have been forgiven in confession, the, the, uh, the temporal punishment that, that is due for them remains. You know, and, and why is that? Well, you think of it as a child uh, who's told, don't play ball in the house. And the child breaks the rule, plays balls in the house, winds up, you know, breaks a window. And so uh, the father says, he goes to the father, he confesses, the father forgives him. So he's forgiven of his sin, but the father still makes him pay for the damage, right? Either with money or, or by doing some extra chores or, or something along those lines. And, and that's why the priest gives you a penance after, you know, uh, you go to confession, you make a confession, he gives you the penance, he absolves you, you're forgiven of your sins, but you still need to go and, uh, <clears throat> and remit for that temporal punishment. Now, an indulgence, an indulgence is the remission of some or all of the temporal punishment due to our sins. Okay, this is outside the sacrament. So that is the punishment that's due for venial sins or mortal sins that have already been forgiven. So number one, to get a, uh, an indulgence, you have to be in the state of grace. And there's two kinds of indulgences. There's this plenary indulgences and partial indulgences. And a plenary indulgence is the full remission of all the temporal punishment due for your sins. So if you're in a state of grace and you gain a plenary indulgence and, and you were to die before you fell into sin again, um, you, there would be no purgatory purgatory time for you. That'd be straight to heaven, okay? And then a partial indulgence, as the name implies, it's a partial remission of those sins. So it at least lessens the debt that you will owe when you leave this life. Now, how is it that the Church can grant these indulgences in the first place? Well, you know, our, our Lord Jesus 
conferred the power to grant indulgences uh, when he said to Peter, I'll give thee the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, And the church grants the indulgences from the great uh, treasury of the infinite merits of Jesus Christ and and the superabundant merits of Mary and the saints. So, like I say, to, to get an indulgence, you have to be in a state of grace. The next thing you need to do is to make the intention to gain the indulgence and then to fulfill the conditions prescribed. Obviously, if if there's an indulgence attached to some prayer, you have to actually say the prayer. Um, right, so first the, the uh, state of grace, and then the, because the indulgence isn't, isn't a substitute for confession, right? It's for sins, or for punishment for sins that have been forgiven. And then the next is to make the intention, you know, and, and a good way to do this is to, to make the intention a part of your morning offering. You pray your morning offering and you include, and I desire to gain all the indulgences attached to the prayers that I shall say and the good works that I shall perform this day. And then to, you know, fulfill the conditions. And, and this is simplest, of course, when we're talking about partial indulgences. If you are, are going for a plenary indulgence and you failed to meet the conditions, you still receive a partial indulgence. You know, if you're in the state of grace and you make your intentions and your intention, you gain a partial indulgence every time you pray the rosary, for example, even on yourself. Uh, but it becomes plenary if you pray the rosary in a church or if you pray the rosary uh, in in public. They say in a group, so that's one or more people under the usual conditions. Another example is after communion. I pray the prayer before the crucifix. Right. Uh, uh, Look down upon me, O good and gentle Jesus, I cast myself upon thy knees in thy sight, etc. Now, I make a habit, I always pray that prayer after communion, but, um, and there's an indulgence. You get a partial indulgence every time you do that, if you receive communion and pray that prayer. But you can gain a plenary indulgence each of the Fridays of Lent. And that includes the, the Fridays of Passion Time, the last two weeks of Lent. So if you piously recite that prayer before an image of Christ crucified, under the usual conditions, right? You, you see that, especially in older books of piety, gain an indulgence, a plenary indulgence under the usual conditions. And, and so, <clears throat> so what is that? What are the usual conditions? So to gain a, a plenary indulgence, in addition to the particular conditions of uh, the indulgence act, right? And so in this case, to say this certain prayer on a certain day after communion before an image of Jesus crucified. And then you also have to fulfill these other conditions. Be in a state of grace. Uh, it says at least by the time the indulgence act is completed, because there are such things as making the stations of Rome, where you go from one church to another, and you have to hear like morning or evening prayer at the church, right? And you, and you can only, you know, do it the, the one thing per day. So it's going to take several days. So as long as you're in a state of grace by the time you're done, you know, uh, you can gain the indulgence. Uh, but that's you know. Uh, special case. Uh, in addition to being the state of grace and making the intention, you have to have the interior disposition of complete detachment from sin, even venial sin. And I suspect most Catholics assume, okay, this is the hardest thing. Um, but, uh, and we'll talk about that more later. And then sacramental confession and Holy Communion. And it's certainly better to receive Holy Communion during Mass, but you can receive, uh, you just receiving Communion is the only requirement. And pray for the intentions of the Supreme Pontiff. So, according to the Apostolic Penitentiary, 
quote, it is appropriate but not necessary that the sacramental confession and especially Holy Communion and the prayer for the Pope's intentions take place on the same day that the indulgence work is performed. But, and we're talking about plenary indulgences, it is sufficient that these sacred rites and prayers be carried out within several days, about 20 before or after the indulgence act. So, and prayer for the Pope's intentions, by the way, uh, typically is just, uh, it's left to the choice of the faithful, but customary to pray in Our Father, a Hail Mary, and a Glory Be. And as uh, when I was talking with Terry, he brought up the fact that one sacramental confession um, suffices for plenty or for several plenary indulgences. You can gain a plenary indulgence every single day. That doesn't mean you have to go to confession every single day, so long as you remain in a state of grace and have gone to confession within um, that time frame. Uh, but, but you know, the communion and, and a separate prayer for the Holy Father's intentions, that should happen each time you uh, gain the plenary indulgence. And, and for those who are legitimately impeded in some way, a confessor can't commute uh, you know, the work's prescribed if it's something you have to go to do, like to say the Stations of the Cross or, or, or the, some of the conditions that are required, except, of course, detachment from sin. And that, as I said, might seem to most of us as the most difficult part of the usual conditions, detachment from all sin, even venial sin. But you have to consider that the Church would not ask us to do something, would not require uh, something from the faithful that's impossible to attain. And, and also consider what detachment is not. You know, the requirement is not to be free from all sin, because we're all sinners. Rather, it is freedom from the attachment to sin. But what does that mean? I think that's, that's where the rubber means the road, meets the road. What is attachment to sin? What is detachment? So detachment from all sins, even venial sins, means that there is no sin in your life that you are unwilling to renounce. And, you know, you should be able to tell if you're fulfilling this condition. What's called an attachment to sin is a refusal to amend a situation because maybe deep down you don't want to let go of some certain sin. Uh, you know, and, and um, classic examples would be gossiping or overeating. These are things that, you know, it's like, I don't want to, uh, you know, suddenly stop uh, eating or stop talking about stuff, you know, stop gossiping. Um, but it's different. See, it's different from uh, just a normal human weakness. Uh, you know, the situation where, you know, you might fall into the same sin many times, take it to confession many times before you um, uh, overcome it. That's normal. Okay. And... and uh, but attachment is some sin that you refuse to renounce. You say, no, oh no, I'm not going to renounce that sin because I'm going to keep doing that sin because I like that sin. So you should be able to tell if you've got that kind of attachment right? because it is a specific thing. And Christian penance is above all an interior virtue. It's an attitude of struggle against sin. It's a willingness to be converted. And according to the church, that is most certainly possible to achieve. And, and remember, you apply the indulgences either to yourself or to the souls of purgatory, okay? Uh, they cannot, though, be applied to other living persons. And there's a devotion that I remember reading about years ago called the Heroic Act, where you apply all the indulgences you gain to the poor souls in purgatory. In fact, even some old morning offerings will say that. I desire to, engage, to uh, 
to gain all the indulgences attached to the prayers I shall say and the good works I shall perform this day. I wish to apply the merits of all those indulgences to the souls in purgatory. That's called a heroic act because you would not apply them to yourself but only to the poor souls. And the idea is, of course, that when these souls are released from purgatory, when they, they enter into the beatific vision, they're going to show their gratitude to you when they become saints by their constant intercession on your behalf. Okay? Now, uh, in this life, and if you should happen to, to go to purgatory. So that's kind of a quick guide to indulgences. And, and the other thing, this other related uh, method of growing in holiness, and uh, not just during Lent, but all year round, is the use of sacramentals. And, and simply put, sacramentals are blessings and exorcisms used by the church and all those things that the church blesses or consecrates to religious use. They're called sacramentals because they're, well, they resemble the sacraments, and many of them are used in the administration of the sacraments. And they, they are visible signs instituted by Christ to give grace. That's a sacrament. A sacramental is instituted by the church, but Jesus clearly sanctioned their use through the many blessings and exorcisms that he performed in his earthly ministry. Okay, when we come back, just a little bit more about sacramentals. We're also going to talk about prayer and how to pray in this crucial time of the year. So stay with us. No Nonsense Catholic will be right back here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, talking about the sacramentals. And the purpose of sacramentals, these blessings and exorcisms of the church, is to increase our devotion and to protect us against the diabolical. So the church invokes a special blessing when we assist at Mass. The priest blesses the congregation. We, uh, we bless the sick and the dying. We bless the remains of the dead. These things all happen in a liturgical context. The church administers exorcism by commanding the devil in the name of Jesus Christ to depart from possessed persons or, or things. We have minor exorcisms in various uh, rites in the church. And then the church consecrates things. It's set, to consecrate something means to set it aside for religious use. So um, they, we consecrate religious. The men and women who become monks and nuns are consecrated. Special blessing of the church. We, we bl- uh, consecrate church buildings. We consecrate um, the altars and the bells and all the, all the vestments and the, and the vessels that they use for Holy Mass, the holy oil, the church blesses water and, and candles and crosses and palms and ashes and, uh, and uh, rosaries and scapulars and prayer books and even your own home. All these things can be blessed by the church. These are all sacramentals. And um, rosary beads, I mean, that's a... When, when your rosary is blessed... The actual chaplet is a sacramental. It's a blessed object, consecrated for religious use. But the, the prayer itself is an indulgenced prayer, right? A partial indulgence when you pray the rosary, and even a plenary indulgence when you pray in a group or at a church. Um, <clears throat> you know, under the usual conditions like we were talking about. And by the way, I, I hope I mentioned that you can only gain one plenary indulgence a day. Uh, so that's the thing, you know, and... and uh, either for yourself or for the holy souls in purgatory. Now, what it means is, by the way, 
these daily plenary indulgences, like for praying the rosary, if you pray, if you are in a state of grace, if you're regularly going to confession and receiving Holy Communion regularly, if you're announcing all your sins, even venial sins, if you pray the daily family rosary with the intention to gain the indulgence and you receive communion, you can get a plenary indulgence every single day without going to, to any great lengths. It's a simple and effective and infallible way to become a saint. And that is no nonsense. By the way, one last word <clears throat> regarding indulgences. This is, I'm, I'm holding a copy of the Recolta here. It's many hundreds of pages, and it has the indulgence, you know, it's kind of a uh, popular version of the old Enchiridion of Indulgenced Prayers and Acts. There are 780 indulgenced prayers and acts in here. Now, in 1966, I'm going to read from the, uh, a document of the church came out under Paul VI, or actually 1967, the Apostolic Constitution Indulgentarium Doctrina, 1 January 1967. The Church at this time has seen fit to introduce new elements and decree new norms with regard to indulgences in order to enhance the value and the practice and the esteem for it. Norm 13 of the Constitution establishes, quote, the Enchiridion Indulgentarium is to be revised with a view to attaining indulgences only to major prayers and devotional, penitential, and charitable works. And so we've gone from, from this, right, these, these 780 things, to the Handbook of Indulgences today, which is 70. And I thought that was, you know, I'm in sales, not in management, but I always thought that there was uh, uh, something short-sighted about that. But I didn't realize that, you know, if you actually read this don't just look at the at the many indulgence prayers and there are and there are many there's the kind of things that uh you know you're praying the litany of of the holy name of jesus the litany of loretta the litany of the blessed virgin the litany of the saints um there's there's just so many things that you do every day that are in fact indulgenced if you were you know aware if you're being intentional about it that you can gain all these indulgences and there are four general grants at the beginning of the Handbook of Indulgences, the norms and grants for indulgences in the church today. And the first general grant, and that's not general grant from the Civil War, uh, <laughs> the first general grant regarding uh, indulgences is that a partial indulgence is granted to the Christian faithful who, while performing their duties and enduring the difficulties of life, so, you know, typical day, raise their minds in humble trust to God and make at least mentally some pious invocation. That's why this book is only this thick instead of this thick, because all of these pious invocations from the old Enchiridion, from the Recolta, they still carry with them that partial indulgence. Okay? The church didn't do away with them. They just said the more the merrier. All of this and more. So long as you raise your mind to God there in the midst of your everyday experience, you raise your mind and heart to God and you, uh, um, even, even just mentally, that you uh, make some pious invocation, there's a, there's a uh, partial indulgence attached to that. When you say, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, we love you, save souls. Sweetheart of Jesus, be my love. Sweetheart of Mary, be my salvation. My God and my all. 
you know, sacred heart of Jesus, make my heart like unto thine. All of these things still carry that partial indulgence, okay? So just something important to keep in mind. And of course, these invocations, even if only mentally, they are what we call prayer. And the Catholic Church has a lot to say about prayer and has a lot to share in regard to prayers to God, especially um, the prayers of the Church, the prayers that you will find in, in these books <clears throat> that, that, have, that are provided for us to make sure that when we pray, we pray in such a way that we're covering all the bases, so to speak. I am, um, for example, Richie, do you have that clip ready for me? I'm going to do a little quick introduction. Richard O'Bannon, there you are. <laughs> I'll, I'll intro it for you, okay? Just, just be on deck, so hang on one second. Um, amongst the many prayers that, that we say commonly, and, and most of us, we pray the rosary, say it every day, is the Salve Regina, or the Hail Holy Queen. And it's a beautiful prayer. We pray it at the end of the rosary, if you pray the daily rosary, or it's, uh, it's actually part of the, the liturgy of the hours or, or the, uh, the divine office. It is the prayer after night prayer, after Compline, you pray the Hail Holy Queen. Uh, traditionally, there's other, some other prayers that you can say, but usually it's the Hail Holy Queen. And this prayer, you know, whenever somebody says to me, Salve Regina, to this day, in my head, you know, when I hear the Latin name, I, I hear the singing nuns. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, this beautiful a cappella uh, voices. But a couple of years ago, I heard a, a group called Ensemble Organum, who, it's, a, it's a chant group, and they put out an album called The Chant of the Templars, and they gave us the Salve Regina in its original chant setting. And this is the thing that, that maybe you don't know. The Salve Regina was actually uh, composed by Bishop Adamar, who was the papal legate of the First Crusade. And this was a prayer that was written for the Crusaders. And, uh, and Richie, if you've got it there, I want to play it for you now. This is the original setting. We'll just play the first uh, uh, little bit of it, of the, the original chant setting for Salve Regina. Now, okay, I'm not going to play the whole thing, but you can see how very different that is from the way that we, you know, or, or the, the really sanitized version, Hail, Holy Queen, enthroned above, right? This is a, a, a prayer that was set to a chant that was written for men who were going into battle, and not just spiritual battle, but think of the words of the Salve Regina, Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry, poor, banished children of Eve. To thee do we send up our, our sighs and mourning, right? You're weeping uh, in this, from this veil of tears. Turn then, O most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy towards us, that after this our exile show unto us the blessed fruit of thy womb. It's well to remember that the Crusaders, they took a crusading vow, but their vow was not to take Jerusalem back 
from the Muslims. Although that was a practical uh, effect of it, their vow was to hear Mass at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And of course, the problem was the Church of the Holy Sepulcher was in the middle of Jerusalem, which was being held by the Muslims, and which at the time was being used as a stable, right? So it needed, there was a lot that needed to happen before those men could complete that vow. But the vow, which carried with it a plenary indulgence, was to hear Mass, to assist at Mass at the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And so that chant in its original setting is a chant for warriors going into battle. But they're, but, you know, and, and, and so the same thing for you and me. And that's, and that's the same emphasis. We're not going into battle for ourselves. We're not going into battle for glory. We're not going into battle uh, for, for land or possessions. We are going so that the, the Blessed Virgin would show unto us the blessed fruit of her womb. We're doing it for the love of Christ. And that's what prayer is, is about. And, you know, um, it's not just the, the you know, repetition of, of certain words, okay? These words that have been provided for us by the Church especially, and, of course, you can always pray in your own words, but, but the liturgical prayer and, and the, the prayers that you find in, in your prayer book, you know, um, it's about giving attention to what they mean. And unfortunately, there are uh, you know, thousands uh, and hopefully even millions of, of Christians, Catholic Christians, who are praying these prayers every day. But many, many thousands of them, um, unfortunately, are not you know, being conscious in the way they pray them. And that's what, that's what I want to do, is to have a clear idea that when you're praying, you're talking to God. And, and St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that when you talk to God, when you make the sign of the cross, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and you begin your prayers to God, you have God's undivided attention. Prayer is a dialogue. You are speaking to God, and He is listening, and He answers in many, many ways, but we have to be attentive to those ways. St. Augustine said, we speak to God when we pray. He answers when we read the Holy Scriptures. And there are many other ways, too. But God has bound himself to hear our prayers. Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. What could Jesus say that would be any clearer than that? And, and these and similar promises were made by our blessed Lord all through the scriptures, all through his earthly ministry. And we're going to talk about that next week, along with uh, just so much other stuff. Thank you for being with us. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family from us at Virgin Most Powerful Radio.